1: Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast sponsored by GenuCell. We thank them for sponsoring the show. Let me read you this quote. Presidents will come and go, but the Supreme Court goes on forever. That's William Howard Taft. And that brings us to this book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Why is it politically incorrect? And how cool is it that this book just dropped as we've had some major decisions come out of the Supreme Court? You will know the names of both authors, but one of them joins us next.
0: Now, it's time for some sanity. It's the Michelle Tafoya podcast.
1: You may know the name John Yu. He often appears on a number of television networks to talk about the Supreme Court and, and the law. He's a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, the school that I attended. And Robert J. Delahunty is another name you may know. He is the co-author of this book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. He is going to join us next to talk about the book, some recent decisions, Dobbs on abortion, uh, all of the things that are going on, the Second Amendment. We're going to get into it in really simple terms. That's what I love about this book, and that's what I love about our upcoming guests, because it's going to be very easy to digest. Uh, And... If you're like me, you like that. If you're also like me, you may be looking in the mirror and seeing some dark spots, and they're not going to go away on their own. So introducing the dark spot corrector from Genucel right in time for summer. The dark spot corrector with not one but three cutting-edge ingredients goes to work fast to target sunspots, dark spots, liver spots, and even old discoloration both on your face and your hands. You will be amazed at how quickly you'll see results. And you can now enjoy your summer sun, beach, and barbecues without the embarrassing spots. With Jenny you'll see the results or your money back. No questions asked so go to genucel.com right now that's g-e-n-u-c-e-l.com get your dark spot corrector with the new Genucel most popular package now featuring summer essentials like the best-selling ultra retinol moisturizer this is one of my favorites it's got a powerful retinol alternative for safe use in the summer sun visit com slash michelle and don't forget it's michelle with one l Right now for these amazing summer essentials and save over 70% off Genyacel's most popular package. Do not wait. Order Genyacel's most popular package now. Free shipping, free returns, and the very best luxury skincare you've ever used. All at 70% off. Genyacel.com slash Michelle. Genyacel.com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E. All orders will include a mystery luxury gift while supplies last. That sounds fun. And it is, I can tell you firsthand, genucel.com slash Michelle. Coming up next, the Supreme Court. This is a politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. One of its authors, Robert Delahunty, joins us right now. Robert Delahunty, thank you for being with us. The book, The Politically Incorrect Guide, to the Supreme court. I have been enjoying this read. Um, yeah, you know, I like simple and I like stuff to be explained to me in terms that I can understand. So a big massive textbook on the Supreme court is probably going to turn me off this. I enjoyed, I can sink in, I can, it's, it's, and that's not to say that it's dumbed down by any means, but what fascinated me about the timing of this book was that it was released right before the affirmative action ruling. In anticipation of this summer's rulings, how did you approach the book knowing that some of these things might be resolved
2: after its release? Well, we started work on the book about a year ago after last year's major Supreme Court decisions. I say we, I mean myself, Robert Delahunty, and my co-author, John Yu, who's a very famous and distinguished professor of law at the University of California in Berkeley. And we wanted to write a book that was user-friendly, that was accessible to lay people, not just for lawyers, but really for everybody with an interest in the U.S. Supreme Court and its history and its role in American society, and particularly some of its controversial recent decisions. And looking out a year, Uh, We saw that affirmative action was on the horizon. Uh, We didn't know how the court would come out, but we expressed a hope that it would affirm, as it has done, the basic constitutional principles of racial equality before the law. And fortunately, it has done that this term. And the timing was largely at the judgment of our publisher, Regnery, and I think they timed it beautifully. So it came out... (laughs) exactly when people's interest in the court was peaking.
1: It it sure was. You have said just now that you're glad about the decision about affirmative action as am I. And I, and I'm kind of certain that maybe I was helped a little bit by affirmative action. I have an Hispanic background and I'm a female and I applied to colleges back in the, in the, uh, the early to mid eighties. So I think at that time, Uh, I probably checked those boxes to help myself out. Um, But the fact of the matter is I did have to go to school and get myself through it. And I managed to do that. Having just that's in the interest of full disclosure. But I am glad it's gone. And uh, my son had the opportunity to check the Hispanic box and said, Mom, I I don't want to. And Mm -hmm. he said, Mm -hmm. I just that's not important to me. It's not how I identify. And I'm just not going to do it. So we didn't. But What is so important about this decision?
2: Well, uh, people have to remember that affirmative action in higher education was a carve out from the general rule of race neutrality. In all other areas of American life, the Supreme Court has ruled that affirmative action is forbidden. For example, if the government is looking for contracting work to be done, uh, it can't attach a racial preference to its procurement uh, requirements. Uh, So affirmative action in higher education was a kind of exception to the general rule that in this country, your race doesn't matter to the government, uh, that the government is race blind, the Constitution is color blind. That has been the general rule in all other areas. There was this carve out um, starting in the Bakke case in the late 1970s, and then reaffirmed about 20 years ago in the Drutter case, there was this carve out for higher education. And I think that was because a lot of educators went to the Supreme Court and said, trust us. Trust us, we know what we're doing. We want to upgrade the quality of education. We think this is good for all our students. And to ensure that we achieve this level of quality, we need to select people on the basis of race and ethnicity. And the court said, okay, we'll give you maybe 20, 25 years to see how this works. Um, And we'll, uh, to make things, to prevent things from getting out of hand, uh, we will let you work on people's race and ethnic background at the margins, but this should not become a really significant factor in your selection. Well, guess what? 20 years on, it has not, by any discoverable metric, improve the quality of education. Even now, Harvard and the University of North Carolina could not show the court that there was any testable, measurable improvement in the quality of education because of their affirmative action plans. And guess what else? It turns out that they're running quota systems. They have roughly the same percentages of African Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanic Americans year after year. They're clearly running some kind of quota system, and it makes a major difference, not just a marginal incremental difference, but a major difference in your chances of getting accepted into some of these Mm elite schools. So the court looked at it and said, we're not going to let you be an exception from the general rule any longer. You have to, if you get government money, or if you're a public university, you're going to have to conform to ordinary constitutional standards, and that means that you cannot select your applicants Based in part, anyway, or whole, on their race.
1: You know, it, I, I can remember Sandra Day O'Connor saying, "This is this will sunset at some point. And now the yeah. sun has set, but there's been quite a reaction, as you're very well aware. Uh, yes. Some of them have been, you know, borderline stupid. Uh, you know, yes. for someone like Whoopi Goldberg to say, "What are they going to do next? Stop women from going to college?" This has no ban associated with it. It's, it's, it's not, you know, th- these extreme reactions to this court have been interesting to me. And even though we've had some 9-0 decisions on other cases where the court has been like-minded on certain decisions, when you have these 6-3 decisions that tend to be, you know, fall along the conservative lines and like this one, people say it's a MAGA court and it's extreme and they're taking us back in time what's your answer to that?
2: I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I think the court has shown a great deal of common sense uh, in his decision. I mean, let's, f- for the moment, stay with affirmative action. Um, the overwhelming, the clear majority of people in this country mm-hmm. think that when you deal with the government, your race shouldn't matter. And the polls are showing not only that there is strong support publicly for that decision. I saw one poll that said there's a 20 point gap. Um, between those in favor of it and those against it. But even African-Americans, according to the polls I've seen, support this decision. This is an elite cause. It's about admission to elite universities. The people like U.P. Goldberg, who are so worked up about it, are part of their elite. This is a program designed for their benefit. It doesn't improve the quality of life for ordinary uh, Americans or for ordinary African-Americans. So, um, you know, what can you do? that will be yep. <laughs> live with it. That is now the law of the land and it has really been the law of the land um, for quite some time, never fully achieved, never fully implemented. but you go back to a famous decision in 1896 it was a dissenting opinion but the member of the court who dissented, Justice Harlan said we now live after the Civil War, after the reconstruction in a col- under a colorblind constitution.
1: That word colorblind seems to be a hot button for people. I know. Uh, some people say, yeah, yeah, why is that? What? What? Uh, do you see both sides of that? Do you understand do why the opposition? How would you, how, what's your view of it?
2: Well, um, we're talking now about how the government sees you. I mean, let's suppose you're at the Department of Motor Vehicles, and there's a long line of people waiting to get processed for their driver's licenses. This is an interaction you have with the government. Should the government send somebody down the line and say, you, you, and you step out, come on, we have a different queue for you, you get service more quickly? No, not if the basis is your race or your color, right? So in that sense, the government is supposed to treat you in a colorblind way. That doesn't mean nobody's going to notice what color you are. Um, It means that the government has got to treat you um, without regard to that. That's what it really means. It's a colorblind constitution. We don't have a colorblind society. Nobody's claiming that. But as a legal system, your color, your race, your ethnicity should be and now is irrelevant to almost every legitimate governmental purpose.
1: called The Politically Incorrect Supreme Court? I mean, what, what is politically incorrect about the book?
2: Okay, well, there's a series called The Politically Incorrect Guides. It's published by Regnery, uh, and they invited us to make a contribution to their series on the Supreme Court. Uh, and the general tenor of the books in the series is to present a conservative point of view On the issue at hand, we write as two legal conservatives uh, and we are writing a book that is meant to defend the Supreme Court uh, after the three new Trump appointees joined it, to defend it, to explain its decision to people, not just conservatives, but people who have an open mind. And what makes it politically incorrect is that this is against, this approach is against the overwhelming dominant opinion in the media and in the legal academy. I mean, let me tell you, I was 18 years uh, in the legal academy. Uh, My colleague, John Yu has been in the legal academy even longer. We are an endangered species. We are really outnumbered. The overwhelming weight of politically correct opinion uh, in the media and in the legal academy is on the other side. So this is a kind of minority view, a minority report. Hey, there are still some conservative legal scholars, and uh, we want to invite readers uh, who are open minded who are willing to listen to reason um, to see what we have to say
1: What is it like being in that position where you are in such a minority i mean it frankly it 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 bothers me that it is so weighted in one direction. I mean, if we were talking 60-40 or, you know, uh, 55-45, that wouldn't bother me as much, or even 50-50 would be great. Why is it
2: so skewed? It's very skewed, and it's it's partly, largely, because university faculties self-select. They admit people who look like them, uh, and the conservative... Applicants for faculty jobs don't really look or sound like them. Uh, It can be trying. What do you mean by look
1: or sound like them? What do you mean by look like them
2: or sound like them? They don't have the same opinions. I mean, if I'm on a faculty admissions committee, which I was from time to time, um, you get a pretty good sense of where a candidate comes out in a law school, at least, ideologically and politically. Sometimes it's right on their resume. Sometimes It's from the presentation they give, and people tend to favor uh, those who are of the same opinions as their own, regardless often of their quality. I mean, you could have a really outstanding, and there are many, left-wing scholar, but you could also have an outstanding right-wing scholar. The right-wing scholars tend to be disfavored, and when they make it through, um, they're a little marginalized. My colleagues, generally speaking, were very good and very pleasant to be around, but there were times when there clearly was a a difference in viewpoint, and that was reflected in lots of different ways, Um, you know, but, you know, I survived. And in some ways, being in such a small minority makes you tougher.
1: Sure. What what were some of those, I felt like you wanted to describe maybe one of the one or two of those ways that you felt marginalized, or uh, would you share that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't, this was uh, the first dean I was there under. Um, I was uh, on the, it was a key committee in the school um, concerning our strategy. Over five years as a school, I was put on it for one year and I was the only person there who was remotely conservative. And I expressed Mm-hmm. opinions that accorded with my views and the next year the dean didn't reappoint me <laughs> so i mean go figure i think i know why
1: well and you know what bothers me about this is it's this self perpetuating thing yes. i mean this could go on forever and and we do see some schools now making an effort you know we've got hillsdale college that's one we, do uh, we don't have hillsdale. a lot of yeah. Yes. Uh, right. I, you know, I, I I know you're very familiar with Claremont. Um, I, I don't know. If this goes on and on, are all conservative viewpoints going to be weeded out of academia?
2: Well, I think conservatives generally don't. I mean, I'm talking now about the humanities, not the sciences. Uh, other than business law, they're not terribly drawn to teaching law. Um, they, mm-hmm. they politics doesn't seem to matter as much to conservatives as it does to people on the left. Um, so they're not so much drawn to work for the government or for universities. They like to be in business, maybe start their own small business, uh, maybe go to work for a big company. Um, their lives don't seem to center around politics as much as the lives of their peers. Uh, on the left, so that's one reason. I mean, we're just not universities and government, so to say, are not our natural habitat. That's part of it.
1: I'm that's, kind of an exception fascinating. Because,
2: because I've been in government and universities, but uh, yeah, you know, that's unusual for a conservative. But
1: not, yeah, unusual. I mean, that's that's what's frightening about it because I think it, the more. So let me just let me let me clarify something. So in universe, in the academic setting, if you've got all of these, the vast majority of instruction is coming from uh, Mm left-leaning legal scholars. Are they then turning out a majority left-leaning student population? Mm -hmm. And is that where we're going with with
2: law? I'm afraid so. I think so. Yes. Now, uh, let me say that um, there are lots of quietly conservative law professors in business law. I had colleagues who taught okay. business law. They wouldn't advertise it. They wouldn't wear it on their sleeves, but they maybe voted Republican, maybe even contributed to Republican candidates. But to find someone who is openly conservative teaching public law like me, I mean, I taught constitutional law and international law, that's still pretty unusual.
1: Oh, I, I don't know. It disturbs me. But back, back to the book, yeah. The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Y- you mentioned the massive decision a year ago as you were putting this book together, right. and that was the Dobbs decision that overturned yes. Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, we're seeing a lot of the, the dominoes now fall. Yes, we um, what did you think a- after this happened? And again, kind of, People sort of expected it, I think, because of the makeup of the court that this might happen. Yeah. Um, but in almost immediately after, Senator Lindsey Graham said, I want to introduce legislation that bans abortion. So yeah. he still wanted to codify something relating to abortion and after it had just been sent back to the states. What did you yeah. make of that?
2: Well, let me just start with the Dobbs decision itself. And this is something that's very fundamental and that a lot of people don't understand and that the left kind of exploits. I think it trades on creating confusion. The Supreme Court, in many of its cases, including Dobbs, does not decide on policy. It did not say abortion is bad or good. It did not say it's sound or unsound policy. The Supreme Court Tries to get the traffic in the right lanes. Okay. So the question of abortion policy for the country does not belong with the courts. The experience of the courts after Roe v. Wade showed that they could never get to a legally sound, stable conclusion. So the court said the traffic is in the wrong lane. It doesn't belong in the judicial lane. It belongs in the voters lane. And we're going to return this question back where it belongs. The right traffic lane is the states and the voters of the states. So it's hardly an undemocratic decision. It's taking the fundamental power to decide an abortion policy out of the hands of unelected judges and giving it back to the voters in the states who can make their own choices. We could have 50 different abortion policies in this country. Now, Congress under current legal doctrine, could um, overturn what the states did and make a nationwide law. Um, I don't see that happening, even when the Democrats have controlled Congress and had the opportunity to uh, enact a nationwide policy of abortion, maybe one that adopted Roe v. Wade in some form. They haven't done that. There doesn't seem to be the will to do that at the national level. And I, I don't think it belongs with Congress. I think this is a question where local majorities um, should make the decision. This is not a one size fits all issue. People in Vermont or Hawaii are gonna have different views from people in Arkansas and Utah. And it's a big tent, this country. And so let's have different state laws Of regulating abortion in different ways. That seems to me to be the optimal outcome.
1: But I want to make sure I understand you correctly. So when a state like Florida passes a six week bill and that is passed and signed into law, can that law then be challenged up to the Supreme court or is that no longer in their lane?
2: Right. It cannot be challenged any longer in, um, The Supreme Court or the lower federal courts on the basis of a constitutional right to an abortion. It could be challenged under the Florida state constitution, um, or there might be other federal laws that have a bearing on it. Uh, But basically, the question is now left to the voters of Florida to decide what their Mm -hmm. law is going to be, assuming that it's consistent with their state constitution. And if the voters we don't like the state lot... constitution, they can change that too.
1: Right, right. It's a really interesting time to be mm-hmm. observing uh, yes. the, the legal system and, and, and politics and all of that. Um, originalism is a concept yes. that I, I'm interested in. How would you define originalism to the layperson who doesn't know what originalism right. means?
2: Well, when you have... A document, a written document like the Constitution, you have to use a method for interpreting it. Uh, And there are several different methods that are on offer. But increasingly, uh, in the last, let's say, 30 years or so, the Supreme Court has tended to adopt the originalist method of interpreting the Constitution. What that holds is this. Uh, you look for the meaning of this constitutional clause as it was understood by the public at the time it became part of the Constitution. Though, so if it's a Second Amendment, you look at how this language was understood in um, the 1790s when it was originally ratified, debated by Congress, proposed by Congress to the people of the states, and then ratified and incorporated into the Constitution. If that clause, that language hasn't changed in the intervening years, and there are ways you can change the constitutional text, but if it hasn't changed, it remains the law as it was originally understood. That is originalism. Um, If the law law hasn't changed, the text hasn't changed, and the meaning hasn't changed, it remains the same. If you want to change it, you amend the constitution, or if it's an act of Congress, you pass another act of But the original meaning, the the sense in which this language was debated and proposed to the people and adopted by the people, that is the sense it retains.
1: That is originalism. How would you then say, Okay, so I wasn't around in 1790. Close, but not not there. Um, This you you mentioned the Second Amendment, which is another hot button issue in this country. Um, How how was it? What was the meaning of the Second Amendment? What was the original context? So if you're an originalist and you're interpreting the Constitution and that Second Amendment, yeah. how are you reading that that Second Amendment?
2: Well, it, it, basically, the meaning hasn't changed a whole lot. It says the operative part of the Second Amendment says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be disturbed. I think something like that. Um mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Who are the people? That means each and every one of us. If you look at other constitutional clauses with that language, that's how they've been understood. So the right of the people to keep and bear arms is protected by the Constitution. There is some debate about the effect of the earlier part of the Second Amendment that talks about uh, securing liberty through having a well-organized militia, but that doesn't as the Supreme Court decided, it doesn't really change or affect the meaning of the operative part, which is the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Um, So in that case, the original public meaning is pretty much the same as it was in the 1790s. I mean, people often say this, and it's a really good question. Hey, I wasn't around in 1790. Why should this govern the way I live? Well, the answer is the original Constitution is always being updated by laws. And Mm -hmm. the last word on many of these issues should not be with the Supreme Court. They actually might arrest the development of our legal system, as with abortion. After Roe v. Wade was decided, all kinds of things happened in our knowledge of unborn human life. Um, We developed sonograms. We uh, were able to take pictures of um, fetal life at different stages in a pregnancy. Social attitudes changed. We no longer feared... um, Uh, overpopulation as much. In fact, more recently, there's been a fear that we may have declining populations. We certainly have declining birth rates. Okay, so how do you update the legal system? You have the state legislatures do it, not the Supreme Court. They're kind of stuck with Roe. Um, Mm -hmm. The living constitution turns out to be a static constitution, and the original constitution has much more flexibility and openness to change as needs change and as people's views change. It's a paradox, but it's true.
1: It's really interesting. And the Second Amendment is is one that comes up all the time. And it seems that, you know, um, many people on the left think that the Second Amendment allows people to just murder and, you know, have these weapons of mass destruction or military grade AK whatever's. And people on the right see any move toward any kind of gun control as an, you know, sort of an erosion of their right to bear arms and protect themselves. And in this day and age, a lot of people want to protect themselves because the, as you That's well right. know, there's, there's, you know, the, people feel a little less safe right now they than they sure did say is. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. So when you, when you're faced with someone who says, Hey, you know, This Second Amendment was written at a time when we wanted people to feel safe from, you know, a a, a new invasion by Great Britain or France or whatever the heck it was. I'm I'm just spewing things here. But that's why you were allowed to bear arms back then, because you might be faced with that. Uh, My feeling is an unarmed society (laughs) is is very much subject to being ruled with an iron fist that it, it, you know, is, uh, is a little daunting to me.
2: But well, wh- where do you fall has, on this? One thing that has not changed since 1790 to the present, and that will never change is the need people who feel for armed self-defense from criminals mm-hmm. or when law and order break down. Um, that's not a fear of a British invasion from Canada. That's something very realistic. Look, I lived in the Twin Cities in Minnesota during the George Floyd riots, and I didn't have a gun. And a student of mine said to me, Professor, maybe you should get one. And he took me to a gun shop. I couldn't get close to the counter. There were so many hundreds of people in this suburban gun shop trying to get hold of a gun to protect wow. themselves, their families, their kids, their houses, um, from break-ins. Um, so, no, this is not something obsolete. The right of self-defense, including armed self-defense for yourself, for your family, for other people, um, that is pretty bedrock.
1: And when people say, well, look, yeah, you know, my little pistol, my little gun that I carry under a concealed carry law uh, isn't going to stop the U.S. government. If the U.S. government wants to you know, pound down the people, they can do it. They What's can. your response to that?
2: Um, well, I'm disputing that they can pound us all down if they have a mind to do that. But I, I don't think the number of people who keep guns at home because they're afraid of federal black helicopters, I don't think that's a very large number. I think people who have guns, a lot of them want it for recreational purposes, Um, But many people want it just for self-protection. That's why they leave a gun in a safe at home or in a a drawer, um, because they're afraid of a break-in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, uh, uh, this show comes from Minnesota as well. We saw it all at the same time that you did. So Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess my last question for you would be this. Do you think the amount of power and influence that the Supreme Court has over society is appropriate? And how does it compare to what the founding fathers intended?
2: Whoa, that is a great question. And that would probably take another 45 minutes to answer fully. It has tremendous power. (laughs) Uh, A lot of it was was intended to have. It was meant to be a co-equal branch with the president and with Congress. Uh, Judicial independence was critically important to the framers. Uh, They had seen it's in the Declaration of Independence. They had Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we threw off King George III was because he was not allowing us to have independent judges who would interpret the laws they saw fit. And it's one of the reasons why this country has been so free and so prosperous for long that the judges are independent. They serve except for impeachable offenses for life. Um, are they too powerful? I would say they have been. And that's one major reason why the court has been in recent decades so controversial. They have grabbed power, like the power to shape abortion policy, that doesn't really belong to them. Um, what is the court doing today? I think it is kind of deaccessioning a lot of the power that it knows it doesn't truly have and should not try to exercise. Again, I go back to the analogy of the traffic cop directing the traffic into the right lanes. Um, If all the traffic, all the major traffic is being directed into the judicial lane, you know you have a problem. If some of it goes to Congress, some of it goes to the president, some of it goes to the states and the people, the court is going to be less controversial because it will be confining itself to its correct lane, which is interpreting and applying the Constitution. Not not deciding national policy on a host of on the environment or on student loans. It's not it's not equipped. It's not a it's not suited to decide these policy decisions. If it stays in its own lane, it will still be very powerful, uh, but it won't be a czar.
1: It won't be. It, it will still be a co-equal branch, not necessarily right. a okay. A dominant I, branch. I tend to right. agree with that. Right. We yeah. yeah we we don't. We don't want a dominant branch. That was the no, point. of Having three co-equal branches. Right. <laughs> the book is the, the the book is the politically incorrect. Gu- I could talk to you all day. Uh, Thank this you. is so. I guess. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting and informative and easy to read. And I would recommend it. The politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court, as Me you too. mentioned. Uh, there are a number of these politically incorrect guides, but this one is so timely. Um, it's, it's tremendous that it's come out at a time where we really are focused on the Supreme Court and the decisions there and, and changes that, that both sides would like to either make or not make. And uh, it's been just an, a pleasure to speak with you. And I really right, appreciate you your time today. Thank, thank you. you. As I say at the end of every show, folks, um, thanks for being with us and be brave and do some good out there. Thanks for listening.